When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. I know that I'm processing stuff, even if I'm not consciously processing something. And so when I'm writing, it's really important for me to be distracting my prefrontal cortex with something like TV or like a view. In that distraction, like ideas coalesce at great speed. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I am your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, please tell me whose voice we heard at the top of the show. We heard the voice of the great singer, songwriter, guitarist, and many other things, Yola. So why did you want to speak with Yola? Does she have a new album out? Yola's new album, Stand For Myself, drops on the 30th of July, but that is not actually why I wanted to talk to her exactly. To be honest, the immediate reason why I wanted to talk to her is I was really interested to talk to a British musician who works primarily in American musical idioms like 70s soul country and Western and lives in Nashville. Mm. But then because this is a show about craft and process, we actually didn't talk about any of that (laughs) at all because we were swept up in discussing the ins and outs of songwriting and recording. Well, naturally that's what makes this working. Um, How would you describe Yola's musical style? She really blends together a remarkable number of musical influences, sometimes even on the same song. Mm. There's blues, there's country, there's decades of R&B, there's 70s soul and funk. On her first album, there's occasionally a song will even sound like Carole King. (laughs) Um, It's helpful to know that one of her main collaborators, whose record label she's on, who co-writes with her and is also her producer, is Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys. So if you're familiar with any of the bands that he's produced and and worked with, you know, there is some of that sound in there, but it's still really her own. And it especially all comes together because of her kind of absolutely remarkable, versatile and powerful singing voice. Wow. I know from many conversations over the course of working that you are a generalist uh, rather than a specialist in the sense that you read widely and know a good amount about a lot of things. Are you similarly eclectic in your musical tastes? I definitely try to be. I mean, I am sure I have my biases and areas where I'm very ignorant or or I'm too narrow, not minded. I mean, I think everyone does. But at the same mm-hmm. time, if you like everything, then you don't actually have taste, yeah. right? There's no yeah. sensibility to being open to everything. But, you know, uh, I, and I definitely go through phases where I feel like I don't know enough about a certain kind of music or I have a knee-jerk reaction against it. So I try to listen to it more to see if I can figure it out and stuff like that. Um and there's certainly kinds of music like 
a lot of contemporary pop I'm not super into. I'm not, I'm not a poptimist. Uh, Carl yeah. hopefully will not kill me for saying that. But yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I, I try to be eclectic in my, in my music taste. And so I, I enjoy how eclectic Yola is in hers. I know uh, from my circle of acquaintance that a lot of dads kind of get really exposed to a lot of contemporary pop when their children uh, start to be music fans, especially if they have daughters, as you do. Uh, yeah. Has that started to happen yet or is, is uh, Iris still too young? That has not started to happen yet so much. Um, what are Iris's favorite songs these days? She loves Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. <laughs> wow. Um, that She likes listening to that over and over again. But she also likes, um, you know, there's like some kids music that I try to ban from the house. That There's one song called uh, I'm a Gummy Bear <laughs> that she listens to all the time um, and uh, <laughs> makes me want to claw my eyes out. So there you go. <laughs> Oh, I'm a gummy bear. Yes, I'm a gummy oh my bear. God. Oh, I'm a yummy, oh gummy, gummy, Can't wait to talk to you after I've interviewed the composer of I'm a Gummy Bear. All right. I can't wait to learn more about Yola, but before we get to the interview, I also want to mention that Slate Plus members we'll hear a little something extra from your conversation with Yola. What will they hear? Uh, yeah, we, we talk about a bunch of stuff in the plus section. Uh, two highlights for me is, you know, we have a really delightful conversation about influence and how it works in her songwriting. Uh, and also with a lot of restrictions about venue capacity lifting and her going back on tour starting mm-hmm. this summer, we started to talk about, you know, what's touring going to be like and how does she like to reconfigure the songs when she's on the road? Wow. It would be a terrible shame to miss that. And why would you when it's so easy to subscribe to Slate Plus? You'll get exclusive members-only content, zero ads on any Slate podcast, full access to articles on Slate.com, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Danny Lavery's new podcast, Big Mood, Little Mood. And you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Yola. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Yola, thank you so much for joining us today on Working. Hey, thanks for having me. 
So I thought we'd start kind of with the the basics. This is a podcast about the creative process. You know, what does your creative process look like right now? What's a typical day of you uh, working on your stuff like? A typical um, creative process for me at the moment is essentially waiting for songs to arrive. (laughs) I'm a real waiter, so I don't have like a writing period, you know, although I'm going to have to just to get enough stillness at some point. But what I've been doing up to this point is going through life collecting and that writing is never really a thing I'm not doing. It's something that is built into my life. Um, I'm the opportunist. And uh, I might go out for drinks with friends and we'll end up talking about something. And then I'll go out with some other friends and I'll drink some more drinks and I'll talk about some more things. And through these conversations, through being in the world, like through everything that I absorb in media, some salient points start popping up. And sometimes it's what I'm seeing, sometimes it's what I'm not seeing. And as a black woman, it's a lot of the time what I'm not seeing. Um, (laughs) And so my creative process is having drinks with my friends and then turning their issues into my songs. Uh, Amazing. And are you, do you take a lot of notes or do you keep it all up here in your head? So um, I only take notes when the idea coalesces. Mm. So I'm in a constant stage of spongedom, if you will. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm just trying to just interact with people and have like actual conversations. So small talk really pisses me off. Um, <laughs> I want to go deep and I want to go deep yesterday. And so... <laughs> That's it's really it's really feeding for me, not just on an emotional level, but on a creative level. You know, I was thinking about um, the song Stand For Myself off your new album by the same name. And, and I was wondering uh, then kind of what were the conversations that that led to sparking the inspiration for that song? Because I'm a collector, it can sometimes take me years to finish a song. And so, oh, that's what I was meaning to do. I was looking at the voice note of that and I think it came into my head like maybe in like 2017 but like it was doing my head in for like a really long time and like I didn't know what it wanted to be and like parts would like arrive I'd sing them into my phone I'd be like thinking of like like a guitar kind of feel or like a drum kind of feel or something and I'd sing like the parts into my phone and it just would develop and the subject landed really hard in 2018. Like it was just like at that time, it was like like a melody and like, I call it the schmur, where you go, you do all the vowels, but none of the actual words, you know? <laughs> it was like something was crowning, but it wasn't there yet. And then all of a sudden, kablamo, like it lands in 2018. And when it lands, it like keeps me up at night. I'm like, this is, uh, I need to get this out of my head. It was I was definitely had taken a ch- 
change in my trajectory, if you will, um, creatively and socially and personally. Like I was beginning a journey, and I think, like my the song is a commentary on that. Mm. What was that journey? Uh, from where to where do you do you, do you describe uh, the journey? From being an absolute motherfucking doormat, mate. I tell you, I was like. <laughs> I was being labelled as the archetypal strong black woman whilst not mm. being remotely strong. Not even like a bit strong, like weak. <laughs> like just trampled and weak. But because I'm a dark-skinned black woman, oh, there you go, you get to be a strong black woman. I'm like, how? There's no part of my life where I've been strong. I don't understand what this strength is. Like, I'm, I'm trampled, but like... Like, that's the kind of, you can get that moniker, and then as a result of that, you can endure anything. And so um, the idea of, like, moving from that doormat Yola with no, without any boundaries of any kind to slowly figuring out what boundaries are and asserting them for the first time mm. somewhat late in my life. And... Uh, then going, oh, wow, people really don't like it when I have boundaries. <laughs> like, I need to change, like, a lot of the people in my life. And so, <laughs> like, everything from, like, actually asking for allyship from people that you think might be capable of giving that, <laughs> being another thing that was, like, a large part of my life. And then, yeah, like... Um, through that kind of reaching out for allyship, starting to draw boundaries where, where I thought people needed them, um, realising that there's something very central to the black lady experience and it's neglect and that I need to put myself in environments where neglect isn't the central paradigm for my existence. And so finding spaces in which that's not the case was really hard and took a really long time. And so you're having that journey and commenting on it at the same time, it, it, it sounds like, or at least your subconscious is through, you know, these songs burbling up out of it. So welcome to my subconscious. You've just, <laughs> no one's ever said that, but that's the very core of the entirety of my songwriting process. Um, mm -hmm. So once, um, like way back, I broke my ankle. And it was about the same time that I got vocal nodes and I couldn't speak for two months. I couldn't sing for a year and a half. And then about oh the God. same time I broke my ankle, I know it was ah, horrific. Anyway, I broke my ankle and uh, I went to the doctor and um, they were like, okay, well, um, off to the hospital you go and, you know, I get um, fixed up and they put me on some pretty hardcore meds for quite a while. And... Um, but normally, I've got a commentary on what's happening in my life. But on these meds, I had nothing to say. I was just like, everything's brilliant. And, and point being is that when I finally came down, like the commentary was waiting. And it delivered itself in my mind like a stand-up that was hilarious. And, <laughs> and so it dawned on me at that point that even if I wasn't saying the usual kind of like facetious commentary that I would be delivering, that it was still in there. And so that's something that I now lean into in my creative guise. Like I know that I'm processing stuff, even if I'm not consciously processing something. And so when I'm writing, it's really important for me to be in a still environment 
for me to be distracting my prefrontal cortex with something like TV or like a view or something that's going to focus my, my conscious mind. And then I'm just strumming without an aim. I'm just like maybe trying to get my strum nice. I'm trying to get a nice sound. And, but in that distraction, like ideas coalesce at great speed. And I was kind of experimenting with that uh, because I remember hearing that um, a lot of physicists would use like a menial jobs or a prefrontal cortex distraction technique to mm -hmm. solve like complex equations or problems that they were having. And so I was like, so what are they doing? And they would talk about like how the colliculi um, collect all the information that we've ever seen in our peripheral vision, every environment we've ever been in, like, and it's all just in our brains sitting and waiting. And if you're in the right part of your brain, you can bump into all of that information and make some rather elegant connections. And so mm. it started as almost like an experiment that then turned into like my main process. And in building up to that though, just to circle back to something you said earlier, you were talking about leaving voice memos uh, for yourself. Are those like scraps of lyric are they melody are you uh you know like doing what you think the drum part will sound like uh or you know i think the guitar line should be like do 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 or you know whatever whatever it is like what are those voice memos like <laughs> they are all of the above <laughs> like seriously like it depends what comes some in some songs it'll be like, like on the record we've got a song called break the bow um and that bass line came to me in 2013 um, mm. while I was on my motorcycle riding back from my mother's funeral and the bass line if, um, is maybe a bit too jolly for a post-funeral ride <laughs> like it's incongruous it's mm -hmm. extremely incongruous bass line for funeral times but there, it was there I had to honour it so that's what I did and uh, and so there I am, and I'm trying to cry, and I'm trying not to crash, because crying and being on a motorcycle isn't, you know, great. It's not safe. Anyway, yeah. there I am, and the bass line comes in, and there I am. And I'm singing it to myself, and I'm like, that's actually quite groovy. I don't want to forget this. And so I'm still singing it. There I am, singing it to myself. And when I finally pull up outside my house, I sing it into my phone, I'm like, well, you know, I don't know what that's going to turn into, but it was something, it, it, it popped out for a reason. And then I go into the house and almost immediately the idea just like lands and the lyrics land. Mm. The first verse lands in its entirety. And sometimes that wow. happens to me, like an entirety of a verse. And it's always a first verse. It'll just be like, bam, there it is. And it's everything that I'm feeling in poetry to the baseline I was thinking. Do the lyrics ever come before the, the, some part of the melody is worked out? Or, I mean, it sounds like they often come off the music, not the other way around. Yeah, they really do. And like, I have had like lyrical ideas that have like come on their own steam, but it mm -hmm. almost, they always seem to be slightly less poetic when they're not to some kind of pattern, when I'm not reacting to something. A lot of the time in my mix on the road, I'll have like the bass in my ears really high because it has both melody and it has rhythm. And that's mm -hmm. the thing that I focus in on the most, like creatively and in performance. And so, yeah. 
that's a big part of it. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Yola. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems, whether it's a question about finding inspiration, working with collaborators, just about anything, send them to us at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Yola. You also do collaborate with other songwriters on, on yeah. your material, which is fascinating because you're, you're at least in its initial stages, this process sounds so intuitive. It's spontaneous. It's using the subconscious, but then you've got to get in a room with someone else and like explain it and talk about yeah. it and shape it. So, so like, for, for example, did, was there, were there other songwriters on um, the song stand for myself and like, like how did it yeah. evolve with them? So I'm tossing and turning at night because this idea is keeping me up. I'm like, oh God, I've got to get out of my head or I'm never going to sleep. And so and I'm due to hang out with a friend of mine, Hannah Vasanth, who is a uh, producer, songwriter, based in London, uh, South Indian Berliner by birth. And uh, we were in a band together called Bugs in the Attic way back when in the West London kind of broken beat scene. And... Uh, we were reconnecting after a long time kind of doing our own thing. And I said to her, you're exactly the person to help me get this song out of my head. I don't know if I'm going to sleep tonight if I don't get it out. And so she just like helps me get it out. And I play like a million weird voice notes. <laughs> and like I then kind of I sing it to her and like she's playing chords and I'm like that's the chord but it's not quite the voicing kind let's keep rolling and like we're like trying to figure it out like I'm just trying to interpret what I hear in my head because it's there and so she's like okay here's oh I think I know where you're going and then she's like going like this and like this and like this and she's hearing it in the melody and then like going okay this is this is what it is I'm like yeah that's it and so um where can we finally work this out that's the first half of the situation. It's the extraction from my mind. And then I sit on it for, for two years because I'm like, it's not finished. <laughs> like I got the bit out that was in my head, but I'm still waiting for something. And sometimes I'll wait for the thing and it'll land. And sometimes I'm like, do you know what? I feel like now's the time to finish it. And I'll take it into the studio uh, with... Uh, where I'm making the record. In this case, it's uh, I'm on Easy Eye Sound. Dan Auerbach's uh, the co-writer on all the songs. And we often invite in somebody else uh, to kind of create like a good sense of consensus and add some spice 
There's always mm. a spice factor. And so in this case, it was Natalie Hemby. And we are, I go, okay, so I've got this idea. We got it down to demo. I play it to them. And they look at me like, okay, um, this is kind of a big, big statement and big sound. We love this. Uh, that it feels like it's almost there other than the structure. I'm like, yeah, I don't know what it is. <laughs> like, <laughs> we need to put this into a shape without losing the energy because it was completely progressive. There was no verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It was just like a cone of progression and building and energy and enthusiasm and feeling like I'm getting somewhere. It was the very kind of shape of the journey of which I was speaking earlier, you know, and... And so that's kind of how it came out. And then we needed to, but it was it unhewn and I needed to mould it into something that felt song-like. Mm. <laughs> and so well, play that to them. And yeah, and then they will help me pick out like um, sections that we can chop up and or like put a break in here. And then Dan's kind of like, Helping with, like, the second verse is always something that I need help on because of the way the first verse always lands immediately. Like, <laughs> the second verse is always something that, like, I kind of add to kind of elaborate on what I'm saying. And so sometimes I can still get a bit of the momentum off the idea and I get a good few lines that feel authentic and real and true but sometimes I'm like, okay, I've run out. <laughs> Can you help me finish this one off? And so that's often what I bring, bring people in for. And because each lyric has to do so much heavy lifting to be essential and meaningful, like I try and put more than one brain on it <laughs> to mm -hmm. make sure that we get like the strongest finish to a song possible. It's interesting, though, because it sounds like one of the things that's preserved in the song from the demo to the final um, version is the kind of arc of it, is the dramatic yes. action of it, right? Because it starts very small. You're, you know, you're sort of moving in and out of your head voice. It's that that strummed acoustic guitar. And then by the end, there's like a chorus of voices, a, a, you know, a loud band, a big drum part. <laughs> You still manage to preserve one of the animating ideas of it, which is it's just going to grow and grow and grow as it goes along. So with Stand For Myself, the song, I um, played the band and uh, Dan a song that um, I was talking to them about a song. They're like, we don't know what it is. I'm like, they only put out one record, so you might not know about this band, but they're called Rotary Connection. And there's mm -hmm. a song that really inspires, I think inspired the song, to be honest because I know that it's been in my head for a while. Um, and it's a song called I Am The Black Gold Of The Sun. And it features Minnie Ripperton, and Minnie Ripperton is one of my all-time heroes. And you can probably tell by the production style now why. <laughs> because if you've heard Welcome to My Garden, that goes, she's very delicate. You know, in like Le Fleur or something. Well, a lady pin me in her hair. And then all of a sudden, kablamo, chorus right. is in. 
Like, I'm clearly heavily influenced by this woman, but also things that she's touched or been involved in. And this song, like, was something that had grabbed me from, like, my teens. Like, I'd been out in the clubs with my mates raving, and, like, there was a new um, um, Eureka Soul remix of the song, and they'd always played it at the end of the night. And it was like that uplifting, like, yeah. And then they send you out into the streets with a good vibe. You're like, woo! And so I was always feeling that energy. And then I realized that the that wasn't the original and I got obsessed with it. And so that I played that to uh, uh, the band and they were like, okay, this is, heavy i'm like yeah so now let all of that color how you interpret this and that's kind of what happened you know i think you can tell by the guitar tone dan sits down he goes Burr. how about that and i'm like that's the guitar tone <laughs> so yeah it's like we're always like we're, um, using inspiration and like, like, like part from the conception of the idea um, to the recording of it, it's like I've always got like the its identity and maybe where it was inspired from in my mind, and that's kind of how I think we managed to not lose the energy and we were very aware that it was important for us to keep the energy because if we lost it, then it would almost be. Like the function of that song is for its build. Like, and to make you, to almost put a rocket up your ass and make you feel like you're a superhero, you know? And like, if you don't get that feeling, the song's failed. And so right. we had to, and we're very conscious of that. If there was anything we were conscious of with this song was like, we can't lose the energy. Me and Hannah mm -hmm. captured something. And Hannah um, Vasanth is a real, just a, inspiring firecracker of a human being and so when we were capturing it we were capturing something like essential you know extremely elemental and that's what you're really looking for in a in a collaborator because it, it you know finding the right yeah. collaborator is such a difficult part of <sighs> uh, of a creative process right oh buddy I can't even begin to tell you. And everyone does different jobs. And like, so some people, they are the people that help you in the starting process. Like it's in your head and you're like, oh, it needs keys. I don't play keys, okay? It needs keys. It needs this, or it needs some beats programming, or it needs something I'm not gonna be doing. And so then I'm like, someone needs to help me get this out of my head. Um, and like they need to be the kind of person that not only am I infinitely comfortable with, but also like the connection I have to them is one that literally fills me with inspiration. And, and there are people that I've met, I'm very lucky, I recognize, to have met these people that have 
that fire energy for me. Uh, one of which is Hanover South, another of which is Erin Lee Tazjan. And the Soul Diamond Studded Shoes came about in the same way. Uh, um, not so much that I was being kept up, but that I was um, in the hangout situation and then inspired to create something. We are the rich ones. those environments of like you know the before you take it to the finishing spot like I need to be comfortable to say something completely stupid and to go wrong and to like for someone to be searching with me mm -hmm. and to have no agenda like whether it even makes the record or not or anything for it to be an agendaless situation where it's just pure art that means that I connect with a certain type of person um, who just naturally has a nurturing side. And I'm pretty sure I respond to that because I've never really had that in my life. And so mm. I respond to it like, you know, a fish out of water, finally plunged back into water. <laughs> like it's, it's the life force I've been needing. That's amazing. You know, you, you've said in a in a past interview that you're a genre fluid artist, which I think is such a great term because you're you're combining so many different things in in what you do, but it's all still sounds like you, you know. And and, and I'm I'm wondering. Um, that said, it's not like the second album is identical in sound to the first. I feel like you're trying to push no. your sound in different directions. Do you have a sort of like on this album? I have a kind of global idea, even though we're working with a lot of genres of what I want the sound to do did you sort of have that idea going into it or did that kind of develop through the process yeah it definitely the latter it developed through the process maybe uh, the only thing I could say to the former is that I had a mission that I've always had in my life that maybe because I hadn't met anybody on the making of the first record until we actually started making the record oh wow and so it's like yeah, so I hadn't met Dan, and like I go into a room which turns out to be the the back half of the studio, and I meet him and someone else who I have no idea who's going to even be there, and then <laughs> we start writing a song. So it's like smashing with people you don't even know. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it's 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 over personal very very quickly and uh, as a writer you've got to get used to that kind of feeling sometimes but it's not always going to you're not going to bring your sacred little like delicate kind of idea that you know you want to go on a long exploration with into that space because you don't know them right. so <laughs> you don't know how it's gonna you don't know if they're even going to understand what you're saying especially if they're two white guys and you're a black lady from England. Right. <laughs> and so, wrong continent, completely different demographic. And so, like, you go into that space going, where can we connect? And so mm -hmm. the first record was very much every song written in the room, like bar one, actually, that I brought, um, every song written in the room on the day at the time within a space of three hours. Wow. And I think we still, because of the writing power in the room and our collective grasp of poetic license, <laughs> um, 
we were able to create something beautiful, but like I was fully aware that I did not want to write the album like this this time mm-hmm. at all. I, I wanted to be doing, going into my process and to use my process to get the best out of myself. And that meant that genre wise, <laughs> I'm going across like times when I'm really absorbing certain kinds of music or I'm getting into something that I was into said number of years ago and then you know two years later I finish the song and I'm listening to something else and that Mm -hmm. kind of is what it is that gives it that rounded sense of it feels like there's a few things in this song because like I'm always farming from my life experience of my childhood music exposure in the 90s in the UK plus my mother's record collection, you know, were always like the pool I was drawing from, but from different points of view, depending on where I was in this journey to feeling more self-actualized. And so, yeah, like it's always been like the process over like any preconception as to what I should be doing. Like, I don't think I'm capable of having a full idea of what I want to do on an album ever until I'm right in the process of doing it, actually constructing it and taking it into the studio to be finished. Mm. I have no idea, like, until I'm, like, halfway through the process, three quarters of the way through the process, I'm like, oh, this is what I'm trying to do. (laughs) Because it's already happening. You have... An amazing voice. Uh, you have a four octave range. There's a, a huge variety of things that you can do with it. And if you just listen to even any one of your songs, you're usually doing six pretty impressive things over the course of the, the four minute runtime. Um, I'd love to just learn some more about your voice. How did you train your voice to do what it does? Uh, well, a big part of me training my voice was me losing my voice. So uh, it was around age 23, uh, I was in a few bands, including Bugs in the Attic at the time. And uh, I uh, got bilateral vocal nodules, which are growths on your vocal cords. And so, like, it stops the vocal fold from making contact with itself completely enough to generate sound. Um, I luckily caught them early. And so they were diagnosed as soft nodules. And by that, they hadn't created a strong callus yet, and which is what it is. It's a callus. And so, like when you wear ill-fitting shoes. And uh, so um, I did a lot of speech therapy to stretch out my vocalis muscle that had got very, very tight. And in the process of doing that, I learned most of what I needed to learn in a very, very short space of time that normally is over a six-month period. And so I still had multiple months left on my time with my doctor, who I always name-check, Amanda Carr. She was brilliant. And uh, um, she was like, I'm on the NHS, and you know if I was private, that would be you done. But because I'm on the NHS... We have this time and I get paid anyway. So what else can I tell you? And my answer was everything. (laughs) And so uh, we start talking about the general voice pathology and the kind of the psychology of how, like when the way that we brace and like how that primitive brace position we've had since before we were upright humans can 
create tension in the shoulders and then um, the trapeziuses are running parallel to your um, SCM muscles and then your neck muscles. Everything is getting tight at the hand of this brace um, that we do when we are tense or when we're stressed. But I'm also just reading excessively on anatomy. And then it dawns on me that I can't really go to one place to find everything that I need to know. So I start writing a course and the course is for my own rehabilitation. And so there I go, I write this thing and then I put myself through it. And it's dealing with um, essentially concepts from uh, Alexander Technique and um, essentially what it is in the voice osteopathy side of things and the speech therapy and what I developed earlier in my understanding of phonetics and um, phonology, if you will, like technical situation. And I just created this thing and I put myself through it. And as I put myself through it, I got stronger than before I lost my voice. And I was like, this is weird. What? <laughs> like I expected to get it back, but I didn't expect to carry on building. And so then all of a sudden I could do things that I was dreaming of doing. Like uh, my heroes were the Arethas, the Ettas, the Ellas, you know, of the world, the Tinas, the Mavises. And like my, my capability, my imagination for what my instrument could do it was massively multiplied during this time because I was able to look at what my body would, was could do on a scientific level and then just decrease the amount of strain on my voice and but maybe be a bit more of a conservationist when it came to the use of air and like mm -hmm. yeah like and then when I looked at music again it was with these new ears of like almost phonetically coding what they were doing and being like, wow, okay, so that's what's going on. Oh, okay, now I understand. I wonder how I can get my instrument to do that. Well, Yola, thank you so much for joining us today on Working and talking about your process. No problem, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Raise your hand if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbett, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. 
We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Isaac, this is where I confess that I'm not familiar with Yola's music, but I am going to fix that immediately because she is clearly an artist with like a really clear sense of her process. I love that she was able to narrate all the things that went into the creation of Stand For Myself, not only about the process of capturing ideas, but also how her personal growth affected how she writes songs. I'm always in awe of people who have that ability. Yola really knows herself. Yeah, indeed. She calls her artistic journey a journey of being self-actualized. And I think that really comes across when you talk to her. You know, she's both open to intuition, but also knows herself very well in her taste. And she's extremely confident in her abilities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like as a collaborator, I can be an indecisive, maybe even at times (laughs) wishy-washy person. It could take me a while to figure out what I want. I'm very open to lots of input. And that is actually a totally fine way to do it. But it is also very refreshing to work with someone who is extremely clear about what they want because it really gives you something to respond to. Yeah. I love how she manages to balance what seems to be intuitive creativity with a very conscious sense of what she needs to write and record and whatever it is that she's doing. And I was really struck with her concept of collecting You know, how she brings together a bass line that invaded her thoughts one day and a vibe that comes from a song she loves and just things that she's gathering together. That's a really great way to think about the act of creation. Yeah, you know, for whatever reason, I think most of our interviews have tended to focus on people who are maybe a little less driven by intuition. It's less about being open to those moments and it's more like I have a set time of day that I'm going to do this and I'm very self-conscious about it every step. And I think this conversation with Yola is a really good reminder that that is not Mm -hmm. the only way to do things, even though that's kind of the way I do things personally. (laughs) But what she does that I think is really important is capturing those ideas Mm. as soon as possible. If there's a piece of advice you can really take from this process, it's that as soon as you get that idea, write it down, sing it into your voice memo, do whatever it is. And then the other thing that she does is let it marinate until it's ready and trust that it will make itself apparent to her when that moment happens. Um, Another artist who works like that, who's a very different artist, but another artist who works like that actually is David Lynch. Mm. Uh, I, I wrote a piece for Slate about David Lynch and his process, and it's actually not that different uh, from Yola's. And, you know, I wish I was more open to and capable of doing that. I mean, you're right. It's about confidence in, in large part. You have to not spend all your time worrying that something is going to be wasted or won't find its other half sort yeah. of thing. Um, you just have to have faith that things will become a whole. Yeah, um, totally. I also really appreciated how open she was about her influences. I mean, I get, or at least I can imagine, why some artists choose to be a little reticent, let's say, about their inspirations. And I mean, I almost said they don't admit to being inspired, but that's crazy. Like every writer, every musician, every composer, everybody is pulling from all kinds of things that they've consumed and loved or been moved by. I mean, that's how we learn. That's almost 
the apprenticeship of art. Totally. You know, when I was in uh, Barcelona, I went to this museum that's of the art that Picasso made in Barcelona, mm. which is only the very beginning and the end of his career, actually. And what was really fascinating was to see the paintings he did as a kid, which are, I mean, they're incredibly brilliant paintings, but they are not what we think of as Picasso. He is copying very exactly the techniques and sometimes actually the actual paintings of other artists that used to be how you learn to be an artist and there is a way in which some mistaken ideas of originality have kind of screwed this up and given people a lot of hang-ups that I think are really um, confining. Mm -hmm. One thing that helped me personally break out of that box is an essay by Jonathan Lethem who was a guest earlier this year on Working. He has this brilliant essay called The Ecstasy of influence um you can read it on the website for harper's magazine right now or you can buy the essay collection of the same name and and that essay which is about influence and how it really works actually completely changed my thinking about art it's a brilliant brilliant essay and i i I hope people seek it out i can't let go of the image of yola going into the studio and playing a song and saying i want this vibe like what a what a fantastic image and it reminds me of how some writers put together playlists to establish a mood as they're working on a particular project. Is that something you do with music? That that definitely is. But before I get into that, I will also say, if you're going to play a song for your band, it's pretty great if it features Minnie Ripperton. And yeah. for our listeners, if you don't know Minnie Ripperton, uh, just go look up her album, Perfect Angel. It's most famous for the song Loving You, but the whole thing is great. It's in a lot of different styles, and it's produced by none other than Stevie Wonder. It's it's an awesome album, and she's got an amazing voice. But anyway, to actually sure answer your question, uh, yeah, I would say there's a bunch of different ways that I use music. Sometimes there's an emotion that that I feel like I need to access and there's a song that triggers that emotion in some way or is reminiscent to what I'm trying to do and so I listen to that song or album on repeat um, when I'm on deadline I have a playlist that is all long guitar driven jams by the band Yola Tango and that mm. just makes me just propel straight <laughs> through uh, uh, and get those 800 words out or whatever um, on the latest book though I listen to a lot of uh, what's called process music um, from the especially from the 70s so music mm. that sort of composed according to rules. Uh, there's a piece of music called Canto Ostinato that's been recorded by a bunch of different sort of musical configurations. There's an all cello version of that that I listen to or <laughs> listen to a lot of Philip Glass and Steve Reich um, and various versions of Terry Riley's In C. <laughs> what that was more about was like, well, first of all, my book is about an artistic process, so I mm-hmm. thought there was something funny about listening to process music. But also, it was about having a kind of repetitive groove that you can just lean into for a long amount of time that's going to carry you through the hours. Wow. Um, before we can never leave Minnie Ripperton completely, I-, I have to tell you, I've always wanted to sign up to t- karaoke, Loving You. It's famously yeah. absolutely impossible to sing unless you have what I believe is called the whistle register. And I can picture myself like walking up on stage just to see people's faces. And then as soon as the music starts, I'm going to run like Billio right out of the bar because there's no way a normie like me or just about anybody except maybe Minnie Ripperton and Yola 
could even attempt that song. But I heard uh, someone do it at karaoke once, and it was a disaster. <laughs> it was, and I, I, I wish I could tell you, like, and it was amazing. But at first, yeah. you're like, okay, this is a little mm. pitchy, but like, she's she's doing it, she's making it work. They've got the reverb turned up; it's going to be fine. And then it gets into the, you know, the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh no, oh no, wow. we are in trouble. <laughs> and it's not. It's not a short song when no. it's not done well. Well, I, I'll just hold it in the realm of fantasy then, but it's a long, <laughs> it's a long-held fantasy of mine. To get back to Yola, um, she talked about how you have to be prepared to put aside ego and certain emotions when you're in the studio. You just have to go for it. Or as she put it in a slightly different context in your interview, you have to feel like you have a rocket up your ass. <laughs> and that reminded me of a concept that is particularly bruited about in British theatre circles. That's where I've heard it most, but applies to all creativity. And that is that creators have to feel that they have the freedom to fail. I mean, they do. I guess we all do. But everybody also needs some kind of support to get to that emotional place, I think. Yeah, you know, this is a thing that I frankly worry about. Mm. Do Artists have freedom to fail right now, like right now in these circumstances. I'm not totally sure that they do because like being an artist is so economically precarious and there are so many ways that audience members can get any kind of art they want mm. on demand. And this has just radically changed the ways we acquire, watch, think about, discuss and value art. Mm. And I'm just not sure that artists have the same space to fail as they did before. I mean, to give one example, since you mentioned the British theater, mm. you know, so much great British culture came about as a result of the dole, yeah. you know, because people were on the dole. So a, they had more time to make art, but also like if it screwed up and they didn't work out, they went back on the dole and started working on the next thing. And it, and, yeah. and it just does not work that way anymore. But even though it might not work that way anymore, you still have to feel like you have permission to fail for sure. Yeah. That's the part I think you're right about. And I think the thing that unifies that feeling to fail and emotionality is that making art requires taking risks and being vulnerable. Mm. Mm. Um, and it's not really a risk if there's no chance you'll screw it up. Yeah. And that's really scary. And, and one of the parts of having a creative process is figuring out how to develop techniques to allow yourself to take those risks. Oof. But it's never going to feel good. Do you know what I'm like? Like, <laughs> no, right. you know, we're, we're like six months away from my book coming out. And, you know, I'm still waking up at 530 in the morning being like, what if I screwed this thing up? Oh. What if people don't like that thing? And, you know, it's just like you just have to figure out how to adapt and use that, I, I guess, because it's not going away. Yeah, you certainly can't. The, the right choice is not just to play it safe, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, there's something incredibly inspiring in Yola's story of rebuilding her voice after it literally disappeared. And it's great that she was able not only to rehabilitate it, but to strengthen and expand it. But that must have been terrifying what is a singer without her voice i know right but what a triumph from <laughs> yeah. adversity which is everyone's favorite story i mean yes. she became this autodidact into how the human voice works and that in turn unlocked the thing that makes her truly extraordinary as a performer mm -hmm. and like whether you wind up digging Yola's songs or not. I dig them, but but even if you don't, mm. you have to respect that voice. And it turns out it wouldn't have been possible without her really going through some shit. And I, I don't think suffering is necessary for great art. No. I actually think that's a really dangerous myth. But if yeah. you're an artist, 
and you do wind up suffering, you can at least hope that you'll get some great art out of it. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the, the best outcome possible. All right, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and that way you'll never miss an episode. And now, let me tell you how awesome a Slate Plus membership is. It's so awesome. Slate Plus members, which we are, of course, get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, full access to all the articles on Slate.com, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Danny Lavery's Big Mood, Little Mood, But I also hope that you would like to support the work we do here on Working. Membership is only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you so much to Yola for being our guest this week. And as always, enormous gratitude to our fantastic producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for the long-anticipated <laughs> return of Ruman Alam to the host's chair. Uh, we'll be featuring his conversation with photographers James and Carla Murray. It's a great conversation. You definitely don't want to miss it. And until then, get back to work. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.